I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is Pankaj Mishra, whose many books include Age of Anger, A History of the Present, Bland Fanatics, Liberals, Race and Empire, and most recently, his second novel, Run and Hide, which was published last year. He has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on Narendra Modi's India and the way it's portrayed or misportrayed in the West. Hello, Pankaj, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. So I thought to begin, you might tell us or remind us of Modi's political origins and his route to power. Well, it's quite an extraordinary story because he emerged in the state of Gujarat uh, uh, in, in, in Western India. And uh, before he became chief minister, not much was known about him, uh, apart from the fact that he had been a foot soldier for uh, this paramilitary organization, the RSS, for uh, almost all his life. Uh, from the time he was a teenager, he had worked for this outfit uh, whose uh, you know main aim is to essentially transform India into a Hindu majoritarian nation. This is an organization uh, very explicitly inspired by um, Nazism in the 1930s. Uh, in fact, the founder uh, sort of quotes from Adolf Hitler and says, well, you know, he is doing the right thing and we should also be looking into this whole question of uh, race in India and obviously a degree of uh, homogenization is necessary for India to progress. Um, so it's a bunch of ideas derived from the 1930s that Modi is playing with uh, all his life and then he becomes uh, the chief minister of this state and uh, then of course um, these uh, notorious riots happen and and actually riots is probably not the correct word uh, it was uh, it was a it was a pogrom anti-muslim pogrom where uh, more than a thousand uh, some estimates uh, put the figure above 2000 uh, muslims are are slaughtered are massacred there are some hindus killed in 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 the violence uh, but most uh, overwhelming majority of the people uh, the casualties are uh, are are muslims Soon after that, uh, he holds uh, an election, Modi holds an election and wins uh, an, an, a massive majority. Um, so that's when the sort of particular formula is set uh, that anti-minority passions is the surest way to gain uh, national power. But uh, the other side of his program, which has been very successful, uh, which also comes into focus back then, back in Gujarat is when he decides to build bridges to the business community. Uh, soon after the riots, he's, he's, he's blackballed by big businessmen, big industrialists uh, who want nothing to do with him because he's brought shame to the country. Uh, there's been a lot of adverse international coverage. Um, 
But then, of course, they all come around to seeing him as a great booster of big business. And one of the figures uh, crucial in this transformation is Gautam Adani, uh, until very recently, the second richest man in the world. And he comes to Modi's rescue. He, he manages to persuade a lot of big industrialists that Modi is on their side. And Modi, of course, backs this up by offering them tax concessions, um, you know, creates these uh, special economic zones uh, where they can do essentially whatever they like uh, and not be truly accountable to the government, uh, don't have to pay taxes, uh, receive a lot of concessions, receive a lot of bank loans. Uh, so he creates this very favorable climate for, for big business, at the same time ramping up uh, his anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric. And this was all still while he was chief minister of Gujarat before he became prime minister? Absolutely. And then at a very opportune moment in the early 2010s, that he starts to project himself as a national leader. And there is, you know, a, a major crisis in India at the time. Um, the regime then, which is a Congress uh, government, is floundering, floundering very badly, hit by various corruption scandals. India's uh, growth trajectory has come to a halt. Uh, the whole sort of expectation aroused 10 years previously that India was going to be a superpower that looks increasingly like a fantasy. India's modernization looks to have been stalled uh, more or less permanently. And this is when Modi re-emerges, but this time on the national uh, stage and uh, promises to transform India the way he has transformed Gujarat and becomes uh, increasingly attractive to first people in his own party and then, of course, you know, the larger Indian population. And that party that the BJP is sometimes described as the, the political wing of the RSS, is that a fair description? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the leadership of the BJP, there, there are a lot of people in the BJP who have never been members of the RSS, but the leadership of the BJP has always been drawn from the RSS, from sort of diehard, uh, lifelong members of that organization. And there is no question of departing from the ideology defined very clearly, as I said, um, decades ago. You know, this is a project that they all share. They've been working towards it. So there was never really any doubt about who Modi is or what he, what he, what he represents and where he wants to take India. He was elected prime minister in 2014 in an overwhelming victory for the BJP over the Congress party. Did he then bring his tactics, strategy, methods from Gujarat to the national stage? Absolutely. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a combination, which is a very seductive combination politically. Uh, on one hand, you have, um, you know, massive political theatre in which various enemies of the people are identified. Um, they include, these enemies include obviously Muslims, but they also include uh, the previous elite. Um, and it is, it is an elite, it's a ruling class, uh, the, the, the ruling class created by the first Prime Minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, very Anglophilic in temperament, uh, fluent English speaker, and he's created a class in his own image. And this is what um, Modi is waging a class war against. Um, he represents himself as a man of the people 
who has been maltreated by this English-speaking class, this liberal cosmopolitan elite. And again, you know, it's a very resonant uh, message because India is full of people who feel quite rightly uh, that they have been uh, extremely ill-treated by this by this ruling class. And furthermore, I've had uh, a lot of sacrifices. Uh, they've, they've, they've been forced to make a lot of sacrifices in order to join this ruling class, and they've simply been denied entry. Uh, so there are a lot of people who feel that they've been denied a whole lot of fruits of modernity, of progress, and Modi represents himself, uh, projects himself as one of those people and points to this elite as really the reason why India has not progressed. This elite, in his view, has been busy pampering minorities, uh, most prominently Muslims. Uh, it's indulged in what he calls pseudo-secularism. And uh, this is a time now to overthrow them, to banish their influence from every major national institution. So while he's doing this, uh, he also starts to also create uh, an inc incredibly favorable climate for uh, his sort of cronies, people uh, who've already started to pay huge amounts of money to his party. Uh, and most importantly, I think uh, the man who uh, rehabilitated him in Gujarat, that is Gautam Adani. So Adani becomes a major beneficiary of this uh, sort of new regime that, that, that Modi creates in, in New Delhi in 2014. Which brought him to be one of the richest men in the world for a while, as you say, he was the world's second richest man. And how was that wealth accrued or where was it? Well, it's it, it remains a great mystery. Uh, that's a mystery that's slowly being unraveled, uh, I think, as we speak, um, by various journalists, by various um, short sellers. And of, of obviously, it was a short seller report that first highlighted for a larger audience uh, what uh, Mr. Adani has been up to with the help of Mr. Modi, uh, both domestically and internationally. But I think, you know, very broadly speaking, uh, if a businessman is chosen by a powerful leader in, in, a, in a country like India, we've seen several examples of this, you know, leaders choosing uh, national champions or particular businessmen who they think might be able to compete internationally. Uh, so they put all the support behind that businessman. We've seen this in South Korea. We've seen this in China. Uh, we've seen this in, in, in Japan most uh, most prominently. Uh, but the Indian Indian model uh, was always different. Um, I think, um, you know, first of all, Modi made his preference for Adani very plain right from the beginning. Um, I mean, he did favor other industrialists, other big industrialists, but he's mostly favored Adani. And then Adani is not someone who's actually created anything. You know, he's 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 not you know selling a big product internationally. Uh, something for which, uh, you know, something to which he can be associated. He's into infrastructure. He's into mining, coal mining. He's into every kind of business, um, a business that can be facilitated essentially with the help of the state. So in other words, extremely easy pickings for him. Um, which, and, you know, this is, this is again a climate created for him by, by Narendra Modi. So he doesn't need to really install a whole lot of factories and create products that can be bought and assessed internationally for their quality. 
uh, he's into all these very, you know, murky, ambiguous businesses. Um, and, you know, I think it's something that like that becomes possible if you have the might of the state behind you. And that is precisely what what, what happened with uh, with Mr. Dhani. And there is a lot of black money in India, by which I mean unaccounted money, money stolen from the tax uh, authorities, uh, stashed away in offshore havens. Um, and it's becoming clear that a lot of that money has also gone into uh, Mr. Dhani's businesses. One example you give in, in the piece is that he owns a coal mine in Australia. He burns that coal in power stations in India, which he gets favourable tax situation on, and then sells that electricity at an inflated price to Bangladesh. Absolutely. And political will, political uh, manipulation here is so important because without Modi's intervention, uh, he wouldn't have been able to get that mine going in Australia. He'd bought it years before uh, Modi came to power. It was only after Modi's visit to Australia that, you know, it became possible for him to actually start operating that mine. And then the rates uh, that were imposed on Bangladesh, uh, again, during Modi's visit to that country, um, without the kind of pressure applied by Modi on the Bangladesh government, and that is this is now open knowledge, Bangladesh government would not have agreed, no government would have agreed to those inflated prices that Adani was charging for his, for his coal. Uh, so at every level, uh, this, uh, a very powerful state is intervening on this businessman's behalf, uh, at the same time, you know, speaking of the virtues of the free market, um, which brings him nice editorials in the Wall Street Journal, but essentially, you know, <laughs> promoting crony capitalism. The report, this is a US-based investment firm called Hindenburg Research who produced this report into Adani. The consequences of that report have reduced his wealth quite considerably, but does it seriously threaten his position? It would be interesting to see. I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, he's struggling, no, no question about it. Um, but we are looking at a different configuration here because, you know, I think uh, there was not enough space in the piece to go into these issues. But if you look at the people who have pledged their support to him, uh, you're looking at Abu Dhabi's royal family, um, which is, you know, incredibly rich. Uh, they've sort of, you know, offered him billions of dollars of of, of investments, uh, even after uh, this, this, uh, these revelations, uh, they were still uh, investing hundreds of millions of dollars in his in his share sale, and there's no sign that those kinds of people and people who are you know great allies of Modi are stepping back. Um, so if you have that kind of you know petrodollar fortunes behind you then you might not even need a, a whole lot of Western investment. Um, so I'd be interested to see what happens next, um, because with these political alliances in place, you can uh, open up sort of streams of investment that other people simply don't have uh, access to. And again, I mean, these, you know, Abu Dhabi companies are quite mysterious too. There's been pieces in the Financial Times about, you know, especially the the, the company that's investing in Adani's uh, enterprise. You know, almost overnight, these companies become gigantic. Um, and, you know, nobody's quite sure uh, what they're doing, how they're doing it. Uh, 
you know, they, they know where the money is coming from, uh, but what makes them so big? This is all very mysterious and murky. So I feel like Adani very much belongs to this new murky realm of, of, of global, global capitalism. So, uh, you know, a, a short seller's report might harm him, um, you know, in the sort of, I, I would say, above ground capitalism that we see around us that is reflected in our in our newspapers every day in the business news every day but these other things that really cannot be monitored beyond a point by you know journalists or financial journalists um it might be that he can survive this uh even even at some point start to flourish again and it doesn't seem to be any kind of a threat to modi well i think i mean definitely been um damaging for him because to be so closely associated with a businessman to also identify to associate that businessman with india's growth with india's ambitions with india's commitments uh, to decarbonization and then to have a scandal erupt um you know it it certainly puts into question internationally modi's credibility uh, his promises, for instance, uh, to to uh, level to to levy taxes on 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 coal, uh, his promise to decarbonize, uh, his promise to meet all the commitments he's made in Paris and Kyoto. I mean, I think uh, it it does damage his credibility a great deal. And then, of course, you know, domestically, it's up to the political opposition in India right now whether they can take this to the masses. But again. Uh, a so close an association with a plutocrat and at a time when most Indians are, are suffering terribly, that might also be politically damaging for him. In March, Rahul Gandhi, the leader of the Congress party, was both convicted of defamation and thrown out of parliament. How does Modi treat his political opponents? Well, extremely abruptly, I think is a short answer. Um, and intolerantly, uh, but I, I was certainly very surprised by that. I mean, it shows that there's some degree of panic setting in uh, at the top of this regime because it's it's quite an extreme um, thing to do to disqualify a major leader of the opposition in in in, in a, such a sort of transparently. I mean, fraudulent way, uh, you know, using the judiciary in the manner that they did. I feel that this is something that might work against them in the in the long term. That this is too vivid an illustration of the arbitrary ways in which Modi runs the country now, uh, in the way Modi controls uh, various major Indian institutions, uh, such as the judiciary and the police, and not to mention the parliament is too garish uh, a, a picture of, you know, creeping authoritarianism. After his re-election in 2019, he made a series of bold authoritarian moves. He introduced discriminatory new citizenship laws. He revoked the articles of the constitution that guaranteed the autonomy of Kashmir and imposed a months-long curfew there. Would you find that kind of thing harder to do now? Oh, I don't think so. You know, I think I think he thinks of himself as unchallengeable at this point, and I think he's probably right um, to think that because the political opposition is in a mess right now. It's very likely that he'll win the next election as well in 2024, um, and there's an aura of invincibility around him. 
uh, at present. Uh, also, I think because of the flattery that he now receives from various international leaders, that also confirms him in his conviction of infallibility. Um, so I would say that he would become bolder, uh, perhaps more audacious, uh, at the same time making, you know, certain mistakes that might turn against him. Uh, but nevertheless, if you try and look at it, look at the world from his perspective, um, you could conclude that, you know, so far I've done pretty well. You know, I've got away with things that most people wouldn't have got away with. I've put journalists in prison. Uh, I've I've made the made the media uh, essentially a lapdog. Um, I've managed to subvert the judiciary. I've managed to infiltrate the military. I've managed to change the educational syllabus. Uh, I've managed to plant my own men uh, in senior positions in the universities. I've basically conducted a massively successful takeover of, of Indian institutions, and there's been hardly any protest. Uh, there's been hardly any protest internationally. The resistance domestically has been extremely weak. And I think if you were that person, you would probably feel encouraged to try and do bolder things, you know, attempt something riskier. So I think, you know, we might, uh, we might, we will probably have to brace ourselves for, for, for even more outrageous things after 2024. So he had about a year to go until the next general election. Is his victory in that more or less guaranteed? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, uh, a year is a, a, an extremely long time in politics. Um, so a lot of things can happen before then. But, you know, if obviously if elections were held tomorrow, he'll win with probably a landslide. And again, I mean, I think um, what has happened in India really cannot be explained um, by reference to political events or economic decisions. I mean, obviously, he's done a few things that have made him very popular amongst uh, especially poor people. Uh, he's offered them a whole range of um, social welfare projects, uh, amenities that were not there for them before. You know, things, small things like cooking gas, uh, better medical facilities, all of them go a long way in making people feel loyal to him. But then there's the other side of his attraction, which is harder to explain because it happens in a, in a, in a sort of, how shall I put this? Um, I think he's someone who has sensed very shrewdly that India consists, mostly consists of people who feel humiliated all the time. And to those people who feel humiliated because they belong to the wrong class, they belong to the wrong caste, India, as you know, is a terribly hierarchical place. It's a very cruel place uh, for most of its most of its population. And for people who have suffered that kind of cruelty and humiliation, to them, he holds out a fantasy of power, a fantasy of empowerment, even if it's you know, mostly achieved by abusing somebody or other, um, abusing Muslims or lynching Muslims or going after liberal cosmopolitan elites on social media. Um, even then, it's emotionally satisfying enough for large numbers of people to feel attached to him. This is a connection, an emotional connection, a spiritual connection 
that's, I think, hard to explain, but I think it lies at the basis of his popularity in India and his dominance over Indian politics today. No politician before in India in the last seven decades has had this kind of connection with, uh, with, with the Indian population at large. Uh, this is what really, I think, in my view, makes him invincible. I mean, you make him sound like the politician Donald Trump would like to have been. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, Donald Trump uh, on several occasions blurted out how much he envies uh, Modi. I mean, there's a famous press conference, or famous at least in India, where uh, Modi is being asked uh, these very heavily prepared questions by Indian journalists uh, who are being completely sycophantic. And Trump turns to Modi and says, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. Where do you get these journalists? I wish, you know, we had these journalists in, 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 in America. Uh, and they go to a stadium in, in, uh, in, in Texas, you know, attending, uh, addressing a massive rally. And again, you know, Modi tells them we can arrange a bigger rally for you in, in India. And he's obviously extremely jealous that, you know, Modi commands this kind of mass adulation in India that can only really remain a, a, a dream for him. I mean, you know, in the end, uh, Trump had very few supporters in, in, in the American media, but it's hard to look at the Indian media today and find, you know, people who are still critical of, of Modi today. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think there's been a lot of debates and this has really uh, been quite baffling to me and to a lot of people. Um, we've had now five, six years uh, of Trump and Trumpism, more than more than five or six years. We've had, you know, now uh, entire libraries devoted to the decline, decay, the death of democracy, uh, the onset of fascism. Can fascism happen here? And it's extraordinary to me how so many of these debates, almost all of these debates and discussions and books and articles have failed to consider the case of a country where a demagogue in the classic mode has managed to rouse, has managed to create a massive following for himself with the help of the state's propaganda organs, with the help of an organization explicitly inspired by fascist movements of the 1930s and uh, an organization that's been working over time for seven decades to realize its dreams of a religiously homogenous nation, uh, how little has this example of neo-fascism featured in all the Western debates about, about the decline of democracy and, and fascism, which is, you know, I mean, at one level, it goes on to show how provincial this debate is and how provincial the conversation in Western Europe and America is about all kinds of things. But you would have thought this would be too stark too, you know, strong an illustration of just what happens when uh, demagogues enter politics and become successful, when democracy comes to be doubted by a lot of people and who start believing in a strong man to bring them redemption. But the trappings of democracy are all still there, elections and so on. So when Modi says that India is the mother of democracy, he can point to all the boxes that need to be ticked and he appears to tick those boxes. That's exactly right, Tom. And I think, um, I mean, obviously there's a great desire now to believe 
uh, that India is a is a great democracy and is on the side of the Western alliance, is on the on the same side as the United States and Western Europe, as they fight these uh, autocracies in the East, um, Russia and China prominently. But I think, um, I mean, I think there is something else to be said about this, this sort of, how shall I put this, um, this suppression of what has been going on in India, or at least the denial or neglect, because what it does for many people who are opposed to to Modi, you know, not only people who are in prison or people who've left the country or people who live in internal exile, it makes them feel extremely hopeless. It makes them feel that there is no appeal. There's no no one to no one to appeal to at this point anymore. This is not a situation that has been faced by victims in the past of authoritarian and fascist regimes, because those regimes were very clearly, unambiguously identified as authoritarian, dictatorial, fascist. India, with this formal democratic apparatus you just described, doesn't fit this this particular category, which makes it even harder for people who are writing about what is happening there today to make themselves heard. And it becomes harder and harder the the more Western journalists and leaders insist on enlisting India into this anti-Chinese or anti-Russia alliance because they want to ignore, uh, even if even if they know about what's happening in, in, in India today, they feel that this is too valuable a country uh, at this point to then suddenly start criticizing uh, and be needed in this sort of coming conflict uh, against against China and Russia. Uh, we see this in, you know, not just in, in Washington, D.C. Or in, or in London or Paris or, or Berlin. We also see this uh, amongst journalists. Uh, I mean, obviously, there is, there is a kind of journalist who has been talking up India's virtues as a great market for Western investors, as a great market for Western products. That kind of journalist is slightly fading now from the scene because those fantasies have not been realized. Uh, but that journalist is now being replaced by the kind of thinker, commentator, columnist, observer who thinks of India as a great strategic ally and uh, how we should now listen to the global south of which India happens to be a major country and that we should uh, essentially flatter India. I mean, this was more or less explicitly said in a European Council of Foreign Relations report that came out a few weeks ago. I mean, you know, with distinguished authors, uh, Ivan Krastev and Timothy Garton-Ash and Mark Leonard, where they're talking about how, you know, India is a, is a world's largest democracy and, you know, we should probably not give them lectures about democracy and we should listen to them a lot more. And it's all about how opinion in the world is split on the question of Ukraine. But what's the what's the conclusion, which is that essentially we should we should flatter India and by which we mean we should flatter Modi. This is for for people who have been fighting this regime for for some time now. This is extremely disturbing, obviously. But the idea that that's the choice. Yes, exactly. Seems yeah. as if I mean it can't possibly be the case that there is a binary choice between either lecturing India 
or flattering it. There must be other ways to engage with nations other than flattery. Or absolutely, and I mean, you know, the problem is uh, it's also largely delusional. This hope that by flattering India, you can make it do what uh, you want it to do, because you know, on Ukraine, it's very clear that. India is not going to take a position close to that of the Western alliance. Uh, it's been buying oil from Russia. In fact, it's bought more oil from Russia than at any other time in its history in the last year. It's uh, always been buying military hardware from Russia. In fact, uh, you know, nearly half of its supplies, military supplies, come from Russia. It's not going to alienate uh, its biggest military hardware supplier by taking a stance on on Ukraine. What if there's a war tomorrow with Pakistan? Where are the military spare parts going to come from? So it's very clear that India is not going to change its position on on Ukraine. Um, It will not join the Western alliance. But why do these delusions exist? Um, Why don't they open themselves up to reality? I mean, that, that, of course, remains a mystery. That's always remained a mystery. Are there parallels between Ukraine and Kashmir? There are obvious differences, of course, but is it possible that Modi doesn't want to speak out too strongly about Ukraine because people might turn around and say, hang on, what about Kashmir? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I feel that um, I don't think he's motivated by that fear because, you know, he incorporated Kashmir into uh, India and nothing actually happened by way of sort of furious or even mildly critical international response. Um so I don't think at this point, I don't, th- I don't think he feels in any way disabled uh, by that fear. It's an interesting question. I mean, I feel that Kashmir's um, sovereignty, Kashmir's special status was basically the condition of its accession to the Indian Union. It was said very clearly uh, when the Maharaja of Kashmir join the Indian Union or agree to join the Indian Union, that Kashmir will have a special status in the Indian constitution. So cancelling its its um, its autonomy, its constitutionally guaranteed autonomy, I mean, I think the parallel to that would be, you know, the kind of things um, that Hitler did in Saarland, you know, um, or, I mean, I suppose, you know, Putin's questioning of uh, Ukraine sovereignty and saying, well, it's always been part of Russia. I, I would say those there are kind of rough parallels there. One has to also remember that even when Kashmir had a special status, its self-determination or its power to decide its own destiny was severely curtailed by the Indian government in the last three decades by the most intense military occupation the world has ever seen of a, of a particular uh, a piece of territory. I mean, much, much more intense than the Israeli occupation of West Bank and, and, and Gaza. So I think even when Kashmir was constitutionally autonomous, it was always, in some sense, subject to the Indian state or to New Delhi in a way you know, Ukraine wasn't to Russia. So obviously the ferocity and the balance that Putin has unleashed, that has no parallels uh, in in the contemporary world. Um, But I think we have to remember that Kashmir has been oppressed for much, much, much longer than than Ukraine. So in a sense, what he was doing by changing the constitution was 
recognizing the facts on the ground, as is said about that. This is, you know, this is Tom how it was received in in India. Um, there were people saying, "Well, this just simply formalizes, um, you know, what has been the case for an extremely long time." And also, you know, one sign of how successful Modi has been in painting a picture of Muslim perfidy is that he the 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 incorporation of Kashmir was massively popular. It was met by almost uniformly with with great delight across India. There was a sense uh, which you know obviously Modi had done a great deal to foster and to stoke that Kashmiri Muslims had it too easy that they were being pampered by the Indian government. The facts were of course contrary. Um, but I think he brought uh, relief to many of those people by simply annexing it to India. You said earlier that he'd provided cooking gas and food to people and got popular support that way. But you write in the piece that the number of people who go to sleep hungry has gone up by 150 million in the last five years. And Modi hasn't done anything to challenge the caste system, has he? The minorities that he's persecuted include Dalits and other low-caste Hindus as well as Muslims. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the lynching of Dalits, the lynching of Muslims, the persecution of minorities in general has gone up, uh, I mean, dramatically in, in the years, in the nine years he has been in, in power. I mean, I think, you know, this whole promise to deal with the cruelties of caste uh, in India, you have to make those promises because Dalits, other uh, Hindu castes uh, have become politically extremely influential. They constitute important vote banks. So you have to speak a certain kind of language. But, you know, if you look at the whole program of Hindu nationalism, what they're saying essentially is that Class and caste are not divisions that we are really truly concerned with because the social harmony that we are offering on the platform of you know shared Hindu identity, that kind of social harmony transcends class and caste divisions. So our our enemies are of course people who think that you know Muslims should be given separate identities or Muslims should be pampered, Muslims should not be brought into the national mainstream. We are the national mainstream. Hindus are the national mainstream, and everyone should be like us. This is a very clever way of dealing with the question of of caste. Uh, I mean, I think there are rough parallels in the way Hitler dealt with the class question in Germany by saying that you know the Bolsheviks or the Marxists are waging class war, whereas I am envisaging, imagining a, a racial utopia in which, you know, class categories will simply dissolve. Um, and this is roughly, you know, the, the, the promise that the Hindu nationalists are making. And what it does very cleverly is preserve upper caste dominance over every sector of Indian society. And this is, you know, I mean, the BJP, the RSS, these organizations have been historically dominated by upper caste Hindus. And the reason why so many upper caste Hindus switched to them in the first place in starting the sort of uh, late 80s was because the upper castes felt threatened by the political assertion of low caste Hindus, of Dalits and other, other uh, low caste uh, and also uh, middle-class Hindus. So, in a way, BJP offers, the RSS offers to many of these upper-caste Hindus uh, 
a kind of reconstitution of the old social hierarchy in which the upper caste Hindus may continue to enjoy the same privileges they had previously, and at the same time offering certain token uh, concessions to Dalits, uh, promoting them to certain senior positions in the party, offering them uh, more social welfare. And certainly the rhetoric is far, far more egalitarian than it used to be. Uh, so this is, you know, this is how he deals with this this particular question of of caste. And again, I mean, I think the facts of poverty, hunger, which are obviously overwhelming, uh, especially after the pandemic, uh, which was uh, disastrously managed by him. Uh, in fact, uh, he uh, by announcing the lockdown literally overnight and giving people no time to prepare whatsoever. He kind of unleashed a major disaster in the country for tens of millions of people who were forced to leave their homes and in some cases walk back to their villages thousands of miles away. I'm sure you remember some of those stories that were that were featured quite prominently in the international press at the time. And India still hasn't recovered from that. Uh, the people who lost their jobs then still haven't got them back. And obviously, you know, all these problems of hunger and malnutrition are very closely related to that calamity. But again, I mean, I think, you know, you could ask yourself the question, uh, does it have, does this have political consequences? Is it going to be politically damaging for Modi? And again, you know, you can only answer the question after you also take into account this extraordinary emotional hold he has over even people who suffered from his policies. Uh, because he makes it seem as though suffering is something that is almost necessary to reach for India and Indians to reach a higher stage of existence. Now, if you believe in that, and you know there are there are certain tendencies in Hindu religious worldviews and philosophical worldviews uh, that do insist that suffering is essential, or suffering is indeed a stage. Then, of course, you know you become politically very effective. If there were to be a challenge to Modi's hegemony, where would it come from? Well, I mean, I think it's it's still important uh, that there are certain Indian states, uh, not the most populous ones, not politically the most important ones, but there are Indian states that are run by opposition parties. Uh, state governments, there are uh, opposition party governments. And they still put up a resistance to, to Modi. And you know, I think the possibility of them coming together is still very much alive, especially now. I think after uh, he uh, managed to disqualify Rahul Gandhi, uh, I think the opposition leaders have realized they've got to come together and fight the BJP uh, with some kind of electoral alliance. Um, so there is, there is, there is that option. Um, it's hard to imagine a challenge emerging to Modi from within his own party because at this point he really is synonymous uh, with his with his party. Um, I think um, it's 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 hard to imagine uh, the party doing well without him. So there is no way um, they would get uh, they would get rid of him. Um, the other, I would say thing working against him is that India is still not a heavily organized society. It's still not a hyper-modern society. It's still not a fully industrialized society, um, although propaganda methods, techniques are far more sophisticated than they were, let's say, in the early years of 
decades of fascism uh, globally, uh, Modi has access to you know every kind of media, and of course social media, where he's dominant. Hindu far right is dominant on social media. Um, but at the same time, I think because of the diversity of languages, uh, linguistic cultures, political cultures, it's hard to homogenize India in the same way you can homogenize or you could successfully, people did successfully homogenize opinion in, in Nazi Germany. Uh, there are other examples that come to mind. Um, in India, it's still difficult, if not impossible, to do that. Uh, so there are these things, the sort of intrinsic diversity of India working against Modi, uh, the possibility of political unity, obviously. Um, so I think, I mean, even if there isn't a live or active challenge to his hegemony coming from those directions, uh, they still pose a considerable obstacle to to him and to his project. Pankaj Mishra, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Tom. You can read Pankaj's piece on Modi's India in the current issue of the LRB, along with Jeremy Harding on the pensions crisis in France and Jesse Childs on the Spanish Armada. If you have any thoughts about this episode of the LRB podcast or any other that you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcasts at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. Thank you.